Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, warnings about a fleet of factory ships which has begun arriving in Irish waters in recent days, and more on the flotsam which has been washed up on our west coast beaches. In recent weeks, Joanna McNicholas has been on beaches in County Mayo with beach cleaners and beachcombers looking over the kind of things they find. On Carrowmore Beach, she found dozens of shotgun cartridges and we were eventually able to establish that they came across the Atlantic from Newfoundland. Since then, we've been contacted by our colleagues in the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Newfoundland and they are intrigued about how far their shotgun cartridges travel. This week, Joanna McNicholas has been beachcombing on Cross Beach in Belmont. There's lots of debris bopping around on the ocean waves and some of these items eventually make landfall. In Belmullet, County Mayo, Fergus Sweeney showed me a couple of surprises that have drifted onto his local Eris shores. This is what I would describe as your bog-standard ship's life ring. So this would be, um, you know, everyone can picture life ring. Um, and so this would be standard on a ship. So each, you know, every ship out there, by law, is meant to carry a certain amount of life rings. And so this would be a ship's life ring. Um, this one, though, is quite a unique life ring, I think unique. Um, it, it managed to drift its way to us here from the, a ship called the USS Sunbird. And the USS Sunbird was a submarine rescue ship. And so it was ASR-15, so American Submarine Rescue Number 15. And that was its designation, the USS Sunbird. Well, the USS Sunbird itself would have been constructed and first commissioned in the 1950s, early 1950s, into the US Naval Fleet. And I would say that this life ring itself kind of dates from around the late 70s, early 80s. So whether or not this ring was on the ship from its very inception, from the very first day, or whether it was kind of added at a later date, but it would have, would have been kind of come loose from the ship around about the late 70s, early 80s. I feel. And how did you come to have it? This was found by somebody in the locality. Again, in about the early 80s, they found it washed ashore on a, one of the Atlantic beaches here in Eris and brought it to the lighthouse in Black Sod, where my grandfather was the lighthouse keeper back in the 70s. You know, even today, here we are in, in 2022, and it's quite, you know, it's in good, fairly good condition. It's, it's got, you know, a bit of ageing on it. So I guess at the time when it was discovered, it was probably a lot fresher, and people would have felt that maybe possibly Possibly a vessel could have sunk in the area and maybe by handing it into my grandfather he might have heard of any incidents in the area. So it was handed into my granddad and um, it stayed there in his collection. He moved out of the lighthouse sometime in the early 80s and it had hung on the side of a water tank in my grandfather's garden. Um, that water tank was demolished about a year ago. The life ring was still standing there and so I asked, look, if nobody else wanted it, could I have it? It intrigued me and so yeah I took the life ring and I have it now and I managed to obviously research the vessel it came off, the USS Sunbird. And is that Sunbird still sailing? No, the Sunbird was decommissioned uh, I think in the 90s, in about the mid 90s, you know, its technology had been surpassed so it was decommissioned um, but it, it had served a long and fairly uh, 
fairly notable service. I wouldn't say submarine rescue activities, but the fact that it was a submarine rescue ship would have been useful for certain tasks within the US Navy. What does a submarine rescue ship do? It sounds intriguing. What a a submarine rescue ship does is rescue submarines. You know, it's in the name. Um, But I, I suppose what they are is they're geared up with the equipment to enable them to perform deep sea rescues. So, you know, everything from diving bells, they would have been able to carry diving bells. They would have perhaps carried decompression chambers so that divers, deep sea divers, could kind of go through compression phases. Um, They would have had, you know, um, highly rated winches. Uh, They would have been able to carry other bits of equipment. They probably, their decks would would have enabled other bits of spurious equipment to get dropped on that would have been used for kind of you know highly dangerous rescue operations you know up up to a couple of miles down at the bottom of the sea so they're you know they're going to be sent to the toughest of the toughest of navy jobs so we all know what it's like to see news reports of crews trapped in 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 submarines at the bottom of the sea who are you going to call submarine rescue ships you know um but thankfully the u.s navy keep impeccable records all navies do and so we know from its service history where and the operations that the Sunbird took part in but I will tell you the missions that struck me with this Um, and so the first one would be in 1976 NATO were having a military naval exercise off the Scottish coast and as part of that um, exercise, that uh, one or two aircraft carriers were up there. So we're 1976, probably the height of the Cold War. And the Americans have the new Phoenix missile. And this is going to be used in conjunction with the F-14 Tomcat. So this is kind of a game changer as regards the American military. And they're showing this off. So they've brought the world's press on this NATO exercise. Um, They want the Russians to see this. A Russian submarine has collided with a US frigate a couple of weeks prior to this. So they know that the Russians are in the area. And one of these F-14 Tomcats suddenly has a malfunction on the deck of an aircraft carrier. It throttles up, it can't be stopped. It races off the deck, it runs over a man, collides with another aircraft, and the the, the two crewmen in the F-14 have to eject. The F-14 builds and falls over the side of the aircraft carrier. So now they have an F-14 Tomcat and the latest missile, the Phoenix missile, are now at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean off the Scottish coastline. So it'll be the USS Sunbird that will have to make the journey over and look for that missile and that aircraft before the Russians find it. So the Sunbird is the craft, the ship that comes and will lift that missile and aircraft from the bottom of the sea. So that's quite an amazing thing that, you know, it would be that ship. And then 10 years later in 1986, well, that will be the year of the Challenger uh, space shuttle um, disaster when Challenger explodes. And when Challenger explodes, obviously, there's quite a lot of debris rains down over a huge area of the the US coastline. And so again, it will be the USS Sunbird that will be sent out and it will play a pivotal role in the location and recovery of the parts from the uh, space shuttle. I haven't done the research to try and tie in its its trip to Scotland with this being found in Ireland, but that, you know, the time frames match. So, you know, I'm going to say that it was on the Scottish mission that it lost the life ring. And you have something very unusual here beside it. Uh, yeah, so beside it uh, is a whale's tooth. 
which I suppose at first glance doesn't look like a whale's tooth. Uh, but yeah, it's a whale's tooth. Um, Age-wise, I'm estimating, and again, this you know I'm not a, I'm not a, a whale expert, that it's it's possibly about 150 years old. Um, and in around that kind of time frame and that would lead me to believe that it might be connected to one of the old whaling stations that was located in Eris here there were two whaling stations one on Inishki South and one in Ellie Bay now this was found in Blacksod Bay close to the lighthouse wedged between rocks um, and the reason I think that it might come from that that it didn't just pop out of a whale's mouth um, is, is because you'll see there's a crack in it and there's quite a substantial amount of the outer layer of enamel is gone and so the inner layer of enamel is now exposed and from reading up on it just through various books that I could get my hands on they say that it can take up to 150 years for a crack to permeate down into the second layer now we don't know is that crack there through natural drying out or over time or did it happen in a huge gale and the whale's tooth was smashed around as it bobbed around but you know I'd just speculate that look this came from a whale that was caught back in the days of the whaling station it's kind of you know it's had no real use once once the whale's been harvested so it's kind of found its way out of the whale be it from a ship or from the whaling station itself it's kind of moved around the bay and eventually become lodged into the rocks at the back of the lighthouse and how long have you got it about 11 years Today we look on whale's teeth, it, it falls into the category of ivory. You know, you can't stick it on eBay and try and sell it or anything like that because it's, it's a whale's tooth. So it's, you know, it'll get you in trouble if you tried to sell it. But it's just a fascinating thing. And again, you know, there is no whaling industry now, thank God. So it's kind of, yeah, it's something I'm going to hold on to. It's something I like. It's quite heavy. And so to think that it's, it's you know, if it's sitting on dry land or if it's been kind of bobbing around at the bottom of the bay here for 150 years well that's one story but there's also the story of the whale and the life the whale that it came from you know and so that's fascinating too for me and so it's a relic from that day you know now this area is accustomed to having unusual items wash up yourself you found an arctic boy a few years ago that's right uh, i think any listeners to the show that you know can remember would remember there was a piece done on that on seascapes before we found an arctic research boy that had made its way from the north pole to black sod and that was fascinating to to kind of work back its story it's kind of reverse engineering it's how they got here you know um we also had the the solar arc i believe it was called and this was a, a canadian houseboat so it was kind of like a barge um, it had been made by a guy in canada he had fitted it out with solar panels and um he'd kind of set it loose into the North Atlantic from the Canadian side it drifted ashore here to Cross Beach where we are today and it's now uh, on permanent display at the back of O'Rahilly's pub in Binghamstown so if you're in the pub head on out to the back beer garden and you'll see the solar arc out there you know we've had road signs uh, from Canada wash over quite a lot of stuff from Canada washes over number plates from cars from the states you know regularly get washed up and then you get your kind of frequent things so you get things like hard hats, plastic hard hats. So something you might expect to see on a construction site. They get washed up quite a lot. Because a lot of guys working at sea would wear hard hats and they fall off and they end up they end up here. You also get quite a lot of um, these kind of plastic tubes. They're actually these kind of glow-in-the-dark 
things that you get you know you kind of crack them and they glow in the dark so you can get them in camping shops for kind of emergency lighting the Japanese fishing fleet would use those on long lines so they're used as lures to to attract fish and of course then they break off from the fishing equipment in their thousands and they wash up all over the beaches you, you know you do stumble on the unique things that once in a generation find and but then you find that the everyday item in a way that the sea is kind of it's like a time capsule it's not going to protect things but it's kind of going to spit them out every now and then and so you find these links with the past and you know like here we are with a life ring and i mean where you know the things that this the ship that this came off has has seen and done are amazing and yet here it is you know uh, but yeah two amazing things to have hanging in the house Joanna McNicholas with Fergus Sweeney in Belmont. Environmental groups have this week been voicing concern about the arrival of five giant factory ships to fish in Irish waters. These are some of the biggest trawlers in the world and they can take and process thousands of tonnes of fish from giant nets and stay at sea for months on end. The environmental group Blue Planet Society, along with the NGO Sea Shepherd, have been issuing warnings about the effects these ships have on the ecosystem, and they alerted us to their presence this week. John Hewiston of Blue Planet Society told me about the five ships which are now in Irish waters. Right now, I think there are five. There may be more as time goes on. Um, They are all Dutch-owned. They come from two Dutch companies, which are um, large pelagic super trawler operators and they operate some of the largest vessels in the world um they're midwater pelagic trawlers which means that they drag nets through the water column to catch right now off the west coast of ireland you're in incredibly fertile biodiverse waters are uh, um lots of blue whiting aggregating to spawn in the spring so they're congregating together in large numbers, easy to catch, and um, they're off the west coast of Ireland. And these ships have just moved up. The Marjoris, for instance, has just moved up from dumping 100,000 blue whiting in the Bay of Biscay. It, it said it had slipped its net. Um, other people, some environmentalists think otherwise. They've got a, that company has a long history of of um, illegal fishing and um, some people suspect that it could be high grading dumping lower value fish so that they they keep um, the ability to process a a higher value fish on board Um, that happened in the bay of biscay just the other day and it then moved immediately to the west coast of Ireland. now they will be fishing outside our 200 mile limit so at the moment, there's nothing we can do about it. No, that's not the case. You're a member of the EU, so they can fish um, wherever they like. And um, they are probably, uh, right now, the last time I checked, the Marjoris, which is the world's second largest um, fishing vessel, used to be a trash incinerator, incidentally. That's what she was built as. She is a, probably um, about 50 miles off the, the west coast of Ireland. It's a guess, and she's moving. But there's no there's no restriction. You're a member of the EU, so so they can go where they want. Are they up, they're operating the within a quota? Yes, they're operating within a quota. Um, the problem that uh, marine conservationists have is that these um, floating factories can stay at sea for uh, 
much longer than than a small uh, artisanal boat can, for instance, an Irish fishing vessel. They can stay out in all weathers. They can catch huge amounts of fish. Um, these these the nets that they they have are can swallow, you know, are big enough to swallow jumbo jets. They're, they're absolutely huge. And there's a lot of concern about the number of dolphins that get... The, the common dolphin also feed on these aggregating um, shoals of fish. So um, there's a huge concern that they're, that they're having a, a, an adverse effect on the um, dolphin population off the west coast of Ireland. And every year, um, around about this time, when the super trawlers arrive off Ireland, IWDG, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, uh, report a spike in in strandings of uh, shortbeak common dolphins off your coast. There's no absolute proof, but every time that the super trawlers are there, the fleets catching the blue whiting, there's a huge spike in these dolphin reported dolphin strandings on the west coast of Ireland. So, if if they're operating within a quarter, where are they la- they landing their catches? Right, well, that's a good question. Their home port is uh, mostly Einuden in Holland, um, so I would imagine they're landing them there. But they have the ability to land them anywhere. They could land some of their catch in Ireland if they wanted to. I guess it's where's closest to the demand um, and with logistics, what with COVID and everything, it'll be where they know they've got a decent supply chain. Now, many of these fish that they're catching are being processed to use in fish oils, salmon feed, aquaculture feed. So they're not going for human consumption. So it will be wherever um, suits them best to get that to to their destination or to to their market. These type of trawlers, you say, have been banned in certain countries around the world? Yes. Where? Marjoris and Dirk Dirk, which are off Ireland as we speak, have both been... um, uh, Marjoris was banned from Australia and Dirk Dirk, then known as the Geelong Star, was kicked out after she caught so much bycatch within one trip that it was just unacceptable, including, believe it or not, a, an endangered whale shark. So if you can imagine that the Geelong Star of Australia is catching seals, dolphins, whale sharks, um, and is now called the Dirk Dirk and is operating in your, probably the most biodiverse in Irish waters, probably the most biodiverse waters in Europe, you, you can imagine what's going on. Give me an idea of the size of these uh, ships. You said the Marjoris was a former junk vessel. Uh, she was a former trash incinerator. Um, she is absolutely massive. If you can imagine something the size of an oil tanker. But we normally define a super trawler to be anything over about 80 metres. Um, there are various arguments about what size you, you, you what, where you qualify it. But these are big ships. Um, they're bigger than the ferry you would take over to, to Europe. Um, they're, they're massive things. And the reason they're so big is because they're not just fishing vessels. They're also factories. On board, you've got the whole processing chain, the boxing of the fit, the processing of the fish, the boxing, the packing away in the freezer, in the hold. So they can. that's another reason they can stay out for weeks, if not months, is because um, they freeze all the fish. Whereas most other 
smaller fishermen, uh, most Irish fishermen, will have to bring their catch back in and, and, and land it or it'll go off. How do you, in Blue Planet Society, track these ships? We track them using um, a, a program called Vessel Finder, but there are numerous ones. There's marine traffic um, and many others. Um, you can, if you, most people can get on that and access the basic data, which will give you a rough idea of where these um, these huge ships are. But um, unfortunately, it's quite expensive if you want the full package. Okay. But most most people can get on board and do a bit of private detective work themselves. So if you put in, do a Google search for something like Vessel Finder or Marine Traffic, you see all these little triangles off the west coast of Ireland. If you focus in on them, it will tell you the name. It will. And the ones you want to be focusing in on are the large triangles. So they're, um, you know, they're a bit like the, 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 the they're, uh, yes, they're, they're a triangle is probably the best way of putting it. And you've got the small triangles, the small blue, just on Vessel Finder, if I focus on that, the small triangles are the kind of fishing boats you'd expect to see in an Irish harbour. The ones that are about twice the size and blue, uh, you can identify them quite quickly. You will see them, and they're the ones you need to focus in and click on it, and they'll bring up the name of the vessel. There's been quite a bit of discussion about the capability of the Irish Navy in recent times, uh, unable to put yes. ships to sea because of a lack of personnel. Do you think we're policing our Irish waters enough? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think um, EU waters are policed well enough. I don't think British waters are policed well enough. I think fisheries policing in itself is terrible and i can give you a good example of that um sea shepherd are the people sea shepherd are um a, an ngo a non, non-governmental organization that have a fleet of ships that that um help to protect the ocean by doing police work which the government should be doing almost every time they put to sea in one of their vessels they discover illegal activity by the fishing industry and this happened just the other day. Their brand-new named ship, um, they went out into the Bay of Biscay, and within two days, they found the Marjoris had dumped 100,000 blue whiting. What yeah. does 100,000 fish dumped in the sea look like? It looks like a massive silver raft. You would not believe it. It is huge. It's a white, it's a white raft covering probably a couple of acres. It's huge. And blue whiting, you say that these are fish that don't really have a consumer value, as in we, we, we don't see them on our dinner plate very often. No, um, they, there is some, there is a very small market for blue whiting, but they're mostly a fish that um, is used. I'm sure they're very tasty, but there just isn't, uh, hasn't been a human market, so there's been a low value on them, so they need to be caught in huge numbers. And then they're just processed. They're ground up and, 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 and turned into feed for the massively growing um, farm salmon, uh, fed to farm salmon and tilapia, I would guess, and bream and uh, the ver- and sea bass and the various other uh, farmed fish now that we consume because we've, we've um, it's, it's an iron, it's, it's ironic actually. What we're doing is we're, Removing all the wild fish in the sea um, so we don't have enough to supply demand. We're having to then farm those fish because we've overfished the sea bass. We've overfished the salmon. 
and we're now feeding them lesser value wild fish. So we're, we're effectively um, in a negative feedback loop, which, which will end in disaster unless something's done. John, as a final question, can you tell me something about Blue Planet Society and where we can find out more about you? Um, yeah, Blue Planet Society is um, a volunteer um, pressure group, basically. We've got 300,000 followers on social media. Um, and what we do is we highlight issues that we believe have been neglected by other marine conservation organisations and we pressurise policymakers to protect the ocean. John Hurston of Blue Planet Society. Now, it is important to say that those ships mentioned are operating legally in Irish waters at the moment, despite what we may think about the environmental impact of what they do. The company which runs the Margaris said that the incident referred to in the Bay of Biscay was the result of a failure of the ship's nets and was not a result of dumping fish. And the websites referred to are Vessel Finder and Marine Traffic. I myself found Marine Traffic easier to use and you can do a search on the ships you're looking for there and you see them come up on a map. You'll see that the Margaris, the Dirt Dirk, the Alida, the Prince Bernard and the Scrombrus are all there off the coast of Mayo, Kerry and Donegal at the moment. And on the issue of fishing quotas, the Minister for Agriculture and the Marine, Charlie McConnellogue, has this week announced a review group to look at how Ireland is treated under the Common Fisheries Policy and how to move forward. The Department of Marine has for years come in for scathing criticism from the industry here for not adequately representing Irish fishers on the issue of quotas. And this group comprises of officials and former officials from his department and representatives of the fish producers' organisations. We'll keep you up to date. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes was presented and produced by Fergal Keane. 